Welcome to The 7th Art, a podcast on cinema. My name is Christopher Heron, and I'm the host of The 7th Art, which is a video magazine as well that you can watch at www.the7thart.org. And I'm joined here by one of the producers, Brian Robertson, and we are here to discuss our interview with Alan Zweig. Alan Zweig uh, sat down with us shortly after he won the Best Canadian Feature Prize at the 2013 Toronto International Film Festival. It's actually a really funny interview. Uh, Alan's a great guy. We start, I believe, we start with his feature, When Jews Are Funny, and we kind of step back um, through um, a few of his other films in his career. You may know Alan from uh, Vinyl, which is a, a film that got a lot of attention, which was the first of these documentaries that he's done in the first of his autobiographical trilogy, which also includes I Curmudgeon and Unlovable. And these are films along with the ones he's made since, A Hard Name and uh, 15 Reasons to Live, that all are kind of a piece in the sense that they all relate to Alan. Despite you know only calling those first three the autobiographical trilogy, he really is firmly involved in each, and that's something that we talk about. His role as the documentarian in these films, how he gets them made, uh, what films don't get made, his aspirations within uh, filmmaking. He, he actually gives us a list of how many films he wants to make before he dies, which is interesting coming off making a film called 15 Reasons to Live. Uh, but that's just some of the, the candid stuff that you can expect from talking with someone like Alan. Uh, it was a lot of fun. We shot in Kensington Market at uh, Embassy Bar, which is Kensington Market's a location they actually used in 15 Reasons to Live. Yeah, it, it's a really fun interview and I hope you enjoy it. How did you come to the idea of, of the, the new film? Uh, what was like the gestation period of that? I think that, um, <clears throat> I think the gestation period was like the 30 years that I didn't want to do anything about being Jewish, you know, out of a kind of contrariness, but also just a kind of general, I don't really like identity politics. I don't really like people foregrounding their culture. I don't like people saying, as a whatever, I believe this. I don't like any of that sort of stuff that separates people. So I, <clears throat> and you know, there's also this weird thing about being Jewish where you're both of a different race and just a white boy. Like if, if you say you're just white, they'll go, aren't you Jewish? But if you say you're Jewish, they'll go, yeah, that's, that's just white. So, uh, you know, it just there was, I just couldn't figure out a way to talk about it and also I guess I thought it was unseemly to just like that's private you know that's yeah. your business and then uh, you know and really I didn't push to make the film it was just I had a conversation with somebody I knew they would like the idea they were they want you want to do this application okay like what the hell and then we got the money then it's like but you know I can't really 
it's like I often say, it's like we make the films that people say yes to. It's not necessarily okay. the films that were our dying, uh, you know, lifelong wish to make. Well, let's talk about the structure a bit and what it, what it is, because it, your, your comments about identity uh, politics kind of speak to the fact that it's it starts as a film about do you even mention that you're Jewish as a comedian right. or not, and then it kind of transitions from there. It seems like the structure is your own relationship with the topic that's being explored through these people. Is that, is that a fair assessment? Yeah, that's fair. I mean, that's, I would say that's, I, I think that this film is different than my other films which are similarly personal. I have said, you know, it's true that when I stopped doing these mirror films, because I didn't want to be sort of typecast or mm. I didn't want it to be a gimmick. But had I continued, I probably would have made one about being Jewish. I probably would have made one about, you know, having a hard time losing weight. Like, mm. I would have, so I might have gotten around, had I made that film back then, it would have been different than this one because I, I generally consider my personal films to be actually collective stories in which my voice is part of the collective story. But I think in this film, it, I would have to admit that it's less a collective story and more really on some level about me because yeah. the people in the film are not really necessarily agreeing with me or even expressing similar mm. opinions, although some are. It's more, you know, how do you fit or not fit into this feeling I have? And if you don't fit, that's okay. Like to me, you know, Jack Carter, while denying it also is demonstrating mm -hmm. it. Like even he says a thing, a very small thing where he says Yiddishkeit is an eight or maybe it's an Irving. <laughs> like he can't even say the name Nate without thinking of Irving. Mm -hmm. Like, cause Nate, you know, was a kind of name that a lot of Jews had back in the day. So yeah, he can't, he, he can't help make essentially a Jewish joke while saying that Jewish humor <laughs> is dead. So, yeah, so that, that it's sort of, yeah. So in, it, the film is, yeah, it's me. It's me talking to a bunch of Jewish comedians about like this feeling I have about how hilarious my grandparents were. Mm. That's what the film's about. How did you select the archival stuff though? So because there is like a when in the title that we're talking about, yeah. which is in the past. And that's, I mean, you, you can't interview everyone you want, but you kind of have maybe more leeway with the archival material. How did you settle upon the, the few well, I mean, clips that you did? Yeah. Okay. I mean, partly, yeah, the archival is interesting. I mean, partly it's just a matter of what you can afford. You know, like uh, uh, a three minute clip from the Ed Sullivan show is $8,000. And then there's like mm. plus, 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 plus. And so, the, so the, the, yeah, you know what? The, I always have a mixed feelings. I am, I'm curious what people feel about the archival footage in the film because I don't like how archival f footage is generally used in these kinds of, f in historical films. Mm. I feel like it's just like, and then I worked with Sid Caesar and then you just see Sid Caesar. <laughs> said Caesar for 10 seconds in the middle of a thing that's like why did you bother mm. like you could have just had a photograph for all that I got from that so on the one hand I didn't want to do kind of like and then I met this guy and then you see that guy because I wasn't making that kind of film mm. it is not a historical film 
but at the same time, I wanted to use archival footage, and maybe I wanted to use it differently. So on some level, I feel like I use the archival footage structurally, almost in a way like I used to use my own hmm. mirror pieces. It was just something. It's like as, almost like the film is five acts, and they are separated by these archival pieces, and they're just there to take a rest and to show people who might not know what I'm talking about what I mean when I say that these comedians were Jewish. Huh. Like even though, you know, when they talk, that Jewish attitude, Jewish rhythms, you know, there's a guy in the film, it just was the luck of the draw. It's like we need, I, need, I had one more place to fill and I didn't have enough money to get who I wanted. But if you did Jackie Gleason show with $3,000 instead of $8,000, so we got the Jackie Gleason footage was a bunch of guys mostly I'd never heard of, including this guy Harvey Stone. Mm. But the guy Harvey Stone was so Jewish in a way and so angry and so boom, boom, boom. I was like, okay, you're in. Like, <laughs> even though people are like, who's that guy? You're right. So the Who deep cut. Pardon me? It's your deep cut. Ah, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, the, the archival footage there is there as a kind of structural device and as a kind of, you know, you would expect there to be cultural um, archival footage, so I'll give you some, and on some level it's even like a nod to sort of distributors and like, oh, it's about Jewish comedy, is there archival footage? Mm, oh, yeah. yes, okay. You like that, even if we don't use it the way they expect it to be used. So it was sort of, yeah, there was some demand to use it, and I had to find a way to use it that didn't, you know, like, Again, I don't want it, like, I'm doing all these things that suggest to people it's a history of Jewish comedy, but it isn't, mm. and I want to, I don't want to tease them, so I tried to use it in a way that would be satisfying to them and to me at the same time. Hmm. And going back to that topic of, of when and does it still exist, there's this concept of the old Jew that is different than just being an older Jew and whether or not that can still exist, that char those characteristics, and what's interesting is all of the people you talk to, they're a range of ages, right. and they all seem to have different opinions on whether this still exists, including your own. Right. I was wondering if you could, did you learn anything from that? Like, is there anything you've settled upon from making this? Well, on some level, what I've settled upon, I don't think this is completely fair, what I'm about to say, but I think it's, there's some truth to it. I would say that the, the humor of the people in my grandparents' generation existed in all the people and that the professional comedians simply refined it mm. and did, a, did it kind of a professional version of it. Now I think the humor still exists in the young Jewish, the Jewish comedians now are still, uh, you know, uh, demonstrating that old Jewish humor, but the people mm. aren't as much. So it's like, you know, that's the thing it's kind of, you know, people say, I mean, whatever, the title was just meant to be cute and provocative, and it is provocative, but it's not meant to be a thesis. Hmm. And so it's sort of like, when Jews are funny, does that mean Adam Sandler's not funny? <laughs> well, maybe he isn't funny, but, but I'm not saying he isn't funny. Hmm. You know, Andy Kindler, who's in the film, and I, who is, I, I'm proud to call him a friend, you know, the first time I saw him on TV, he said one thing, and I was like, oh, Jewish humor's back. Like, and immediately I want, and I interviewed him for Ike Curmudgeon. And 
by the time I saw him again for When Jews Were Funny. You know, Andy to me is as funny as Alan King or Buddy Hackett or anything. He's as funny. Mm -hmm. Also, he's not that young. I mean, he's in his 50s, but still, he's as funny. But I don't think that his, you know, and I never, he was the one who turned me on to Ed Krasnick, who I never met, and I loved Ed, and I, would, I almost would like to make a film just about Ed. And he's, in a weird way, like the heart and soul of the film mm -hmm. for me. Okay, he, you know, he's hilarious, but I'm just saying, you know, my wife works at Steel's and Bathurst. Sometimes I drive her to work. There are Jewish delis there, and I go in there, and I'm, yes, I vaguely recognize that everybody there is Jewish. I hear the odd sort of inflection. It's like, oh, you're Jewish. But I don't hear the, like, you know, the, just the, the thick, air of complaints <laughs> that I, that's what I miss, yeah. you know? That's why my favorite joke in the film is just a throwaway line that Mark Schiff mentions. He's like, oh, do you know that joke? The waiter comes over to the table of Jewish women and says, is anything all right? That, to me, that's <laughs> like, you know, that, that's not there anymore. I, I, and for obvious reasons, why would it be there? You know? But that, that, that refers to another joke as well, which is the, the is it the train joke about the water? Because yeah. it could be, like there's the thesis that we won, and that's the that's why this culture cultural shift has occurred. There's this like dispersion, this integration that's kind of diluted things. But on the other hand, there's the joke of once you get the water, there's still the complaint. Like so, it, it suggests that there could still be that. I think that I think that younger Jews still it's like they were instilled with the feeling, but without the experience to back it up. Mm. So they're still on some level you know, mimicking mm. that feeling, but they're not, they're, you know, it, the, their backup is shallow, if, you know, and, and uh, you know, it, it's like an interesting thing. My mother, when I was a kid, used to say this expression, Kanehnahara. I had no idea what it means, it was just a bunch of syllables, it's a sound, I don't know what, is that one word, is that four words? And she would use it when she would say, oh, that's a nice dress, Kanehnahara. And I thought it meant, that's a nice, oh my God, that's a nice dress. Isn't that a nice dress? Yes. No, Kanehnahora means uh, is, is not, it means something like no evil eye. Mm. So she's saying, that's good, now I'm invoking the evil eye because I know that when one says something good, they have to immediately like say, don't kill me, <laughs> you know? That, my grandmother, when she said Kanehna Hara, that's, she, she knew that uh, even a moment of complacency or contentment put you, lulled you into a false sense that would, you know, you wouldn't be as, when the Cossacks come, she wouldn't be as ready because she was kind of happy. So that, that, they, that was their lives. Nowadays, of course, it's not any Jews are, for the most part, you know, they have no idea what that is. They're mm. they're they're just they're kings of the world, <laughs> and we you know we control the money in Hollywood, <laughs> so uh, and even the Canadian documentary business. But um, yeah, so I, that's all I'm saying is that you know, whatever. It's like I don't I hate to say this, but do you like? Uh, Gary Clark, he's this young black blues guy. It's like, 
like, you know, whatever. I don't, it just doesn't work anymore. It's like, I like, you know, young black blues guys playing bottleneck guitar and doing Sunhouse. It's like, sorry, like. Like, you mean like the mimic? The I, mimic yeah, it feels like mimicry, right. I mean, I, you know, weirdly, it sort of reminds me, it's like getting off on a tangent. I liked English blues. I liked Savoy Brown. Mm. They don't sound like Muddy Waters at all. But the ones that are, there's this revivalist thing where there's, and for some reason, weirdly, this is pro, it's like vaguely racist, but somehow the young black guys doing Robert Johnson even bugged me more than the young white guys. It's just whatever. You cannot, you can't pull it off. Don't mm. bother. You're just, you're a cover band. Mm. You know, maybe that's, you know, young juice, that's whatever. They're, they're covering these old jokes, but they're not feeling them. Would the other option be more of the Andy Kindler kind of deconstruction, like the meta, like he's both performing it right. and like, yeah. engaging yeah. it? He, yeah, that's true. I don't know, that's a good way to put it. He's like, you know, I said to him one time, it's like, it's almost like he goes extra Jew to protect you, to protect himself from, it's like he says something really Jewish and then before you can say that's really Jewish, he takes it up the next level to pretend he's making fun of it to hide the fact that he was just really Jewish there. Well, it's like when he does, when you ask him to do the accent and he's, he's putting on the accent, but it really just sounds like him speaking a little louder, like yeah. a lit, like it's, it is still him. Like yeah. there's no real difference. No, yeah. <laughs> yeah, anyway. Um, yeah, I mean, and all this stuff, like my, I just want to make it clear that this is how I feel about, you know, I, I lament the law, the sound, that my, not, it's not even my actual grandparents, but their generation. I miss that sound, I'll never get it back. If you think Jews are still funny, you still might like the film. If you think I'm full of shit, you might still like the film. And also really you have to say this clearly because it's a big thing. If you're not Jewish, you'll still like the film, I hope. Like I, don't, I didn't make it for Jews and I'm offended by the notion that I did. And, mm. Well, now comedy is, is a market, like the, the discussion of comedy, so that's another aspect. And what I'm curious is how, you said that there were some people you couldn't get, and you don't need to name names, but I'm curious if there were any like, people that you specifically wanted to bring up a certain subject that because they weren't there, that was lost, or was it just all no. the same thesis that... No, the only person, there's probably two people, well, maybe four, there's two people that I wanted that I thought would be good for the film and good for me to meet and good to talk to, and they were Mel Brooks and Sarah Silverman. Mm. So I thought Sarah Silverman would be interesting because she does, she's over, she's out front as a Jew and she does all this sort of overtly, she makes fun of racism and I thought that might, I, I definitely think that is an outgrowth of her being Jewish. And then, and then Mel Brooks I wanted because Mel Brooks because first of all, I think he's the funniest of all of them, and he wasn't a stand-up. And because the 2,000-year-old man character is like the great, it's just an old Jew. Like, I don't <laughs> know, you know, and the fact that non-Jews love that character, it's just, they're talking about his grandfather. Like, and then also Mel Brooks, because I have a very strong childhood memory of the first time I saw my father like laugh so hard I thought he was having a heart attack. <laughs> and that was from Mel Brooks on this what has now become a famous episode of David Susskind's show. But um, as it turned out, I think it was a blessing that I didn't get 
Oh, and then just for my own thing, I would I wanted to meet Gary Shandling, and I thought he would be at a moment in his career when he would do it. What, mm -hmm. And then I, I guess I wanted to Richard Lewis yeah. too, and also when we interviewed David Brenner, he phoned Richard Lewis and said, "You got to do it." So I was like, "Oh, we're going to get Richard Lewis," but he didn't do it. Mm. But at the same time, just to be honest, if you know, Shecky Green had to be in the film because he was Shecky Green, Jack Carter, etc., David Steinberg, uh, etc. The people that were famous, Howie Mandel. I mean, Howie Mandel actually, I think, has never been funnier, but. And you know, but uh, the the biggest stars had to be in it. Mm -hmm. And if I had had another ten big stars that had to be in it, I wouldn't have been able to make the yeah. film I made because, in general, the stars were not as helpful in telling the story as the lesser stars were. Mm. You know, so so it's a blessing that I didn't get Jerry Seinfeld and. John Stewart and Woody Allen. Woody Allen also would have been great, I mean, if he would do it. Mm -hmm. But, uh, yeah, you know, it's just one of those things when you make a documentary, it's like, on the one hand, big stars will do your film for free, but on the other hand, most of them won't. Mm. Now, uh, it seems like a, a really poignant moment comes in the credit sequence, and I'm curious about that, because that's where it kind of... Well, there's some moments where where uh, you're called self-obsessed by uh, who was that? Um, Moni is that the name? Moni. Moni, yeah. Uh, and it kind of moves in that direction, but it seems like the most revealing moments come in the credits. Why? Why were those like kind of set aside? I know you do that in some of your other films as well. Well, I, you know, it's weird. I don't. I feel, I do feel guilty about like in Fifteen Reasons to Live. I did a little thing in the credit sequence, mm -hmm. and I do feel I have mixed feelings about that because. It's sort of like not your film, but it is your film. So, but in this one, it's just like, I had to end the film where I ended it. I couldn't go another second, mm -hmm. you know, like Shelley sings a song. Then he explains what the song, what he said, he translates it. And I had pressure from people. Oh, it's, it's like, yes. He has, now when he explains it, I'm like, no, no. When he finishes the song, the film is over, that's it. So then it was just like this little emotional extra thing with my daughter and I, just, it had to go there. If you, if, 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 you know, if the credits, if the film ends and you don't see that, I think you had an ending already. And if you do see it, it's like, I, I mean, of all the, sort of times in my life I might use that technique of a little thing in the credits, I think that was the perfect, I think it's just like that extra little mm. melancholy moment. Mm -hmm. Then I, of course, you know, after that we put in Shelley explaining the song and really now, like, yeah, I don't think I needed to. And then there's a thing with Bob Einstein, yeah. <laughs> which is hilarious, but you know, it is a weird thing. You know, it's just a weird thing. This like using the credits as part of your film, but not part of your film. I do think it's a questionable technique, but you know, hmm. I took a shot. Like, you know, uh, if somebody were to criticize me on that, I would feel, I guess, that's a legitimate criticism. Hmm. 
Another interesting technique that ties into Bob is that when you include in your films interview subjects not really understanding what you're going for or even the question. And I'm curious, that seems like it's, it's interesting for a number of reasons. One, because it brings you into it in a way that maybe is more active than people would be expecting. But also, right. I mean, it maybe it could maybe make them look bad if, it's, if the viewer feels like right. you're pretty clear and they're not getting it. What is the kind of balancing act of those? Yeah, that's an interesting thing. The, I mean, I've, I've put things in previous films that vaguely embarrass me because people like it, you know, it's just, and because it's sort of, you know, like in, in Ikermudge and Andy Rooney yeah. at this moment. <laughs> and the thing is, I just thought, okay, in a sense, he is being the true curmudgeon mm -hmm. there. How can I not put that in? And also, I don't really feel bad no. about him making fun of me. Although I have to tell you that you, I, I, you know, it's like when you, I think it's so unexpected that you would fall on your sword in your own film that occasionally people don't even know that you know you did that. Mm. And they'll be like, you know that guy's making, in the Q&A, <laughs> like, you know that guy's making fun of you, don't you? And it's like, oh, shit. <laughs> I watched it a thousand times with, you know, and I never picked up on that. Of course I knew. Um, I think that um, one of the reasons I kept it, I used it in When Jews Were Funny is because You know, when I made personal, when I made films that had a personal subtext or a personal content, and I was in them, physically in them, my face was in them, then, then I knew that the audience had a way of knowing who that person was. When I made a film like that, where I didn't want to appear in it, then you get into this area of how do you become a character in a film purely by being the interviewer mm. and the filmmaker. So there's just a various opportunities you have to like make them go, oh, this guy's, I mean, if you enjoy Bob Einstein making fun of me, then you have, you have implicitly accepted that I'm a character in the film. Mm. So, uh, and, you know, I never have had a problem with the person off screen being a character in the film, but at the same time, there's been a very strong taboo for many years of even including your off screen comments. Hmm. Uh, comments, I mean, questions. Yeah. Like, you never hear the interviewer's voice. And uh, that, I feel like that taboo still vaguely holds on. So, you know, I have. I've had people say, like, you can't do that. You can't, you can't not appear. Mm. I'm like, well, how am I going to appear? I'm not, it's, I'm not Michael Moore. I don't yeah. come around with the camera. Like, there's no point. I am the off-screen character. I believe that the audience can develop some relationship with that person asking the questions, even though they don't see them. But anything I can do to reinforce or cement that, I'll do. And then there's just the fact that it's funny. It's funny, they, you know, if, yeah, it's funny to see somebody making fun of somebody. Also, it's very Jewish, you know, so uh, uh, their testiness is yeah, very yeah, Jewish. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's why I included it. The off-screen voice kind of speaks to something that's in a lot of your films and to the point that it comes up literally, which is 
the therapy element, like the therapeutic quality of conversation. And conversation is a topic in, in the film as well. Like, uh, there's an association with Judaism and talking about these things and telling these stories. And I was wondering if, if that's something that you feel is necessary to have the voice in there because ultimately it's your pursuit, this, this, this question. It's not, right. it's not necessarily universal. It could be, but. Yeah, you know, um, I, you know, the main reason that I include my voice in my films is because I, it's like I'm, I'm not a professional interviewer. Mm. And so when I started making these films, and I, I, you know, when I made vinyl, like, I spent the first month at home shooting the stuff in the mirror because I was literally afraid to interview. I didn't know what that would be like. And that's why I put myself in the film in the first place, because I was afraid that the best stories and the best stories that I like, nobody would give me, so I had to tell them. Mm. So, and when I started to interview people, I just started doing the thing where it was just a conversation. I would be as aggressive with them as I might be in any conversation. And then that, it's like, like when we cut it together, it was just sort of like, we felt like we just invented this way of telling a story, so I didn't change it, but, you know, that I come to realize, well, one of the reasons there are certain techniques that people have for taking their voice out. Mm. So one of the, this sounds technical, but I think it's worth talking about. One, what, you know, you ask me, what do you have for breakfast? And I say eggs, and you go, okay, say it again, but this time say, I had eggs for breakfast, so I can take my question out. Well, when you do, people have done that to me, and when <laughs> they do that to me, I'm like, you know what, let's end the interview right here because I was having a conversation with you and now I'm an actor in your thing. So I'm interviewing people often who've never been interviewed mm. and who are pretty intimidated. And I just don't want to do anything to remind them that they're being interviewed or that I need something from them or that there's any agenda. I never, I don't want to make them repeat something and I don't have notes, I don't look down. I just was like, I'm going to take a chance. If, so, if 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 you know, did you ever have this experience? Yes. Good. That, <laughs> that's. I'll, I have to leave my question in. So, on some level, you know, whatever necessity was the mother of something. I have to do it that way. So it's almost like I designed the film around the fact. At first, I think unknowingly, but after a while. I became aware that, oh, it is what I do. So if you're gonna hear that guy ask a question, you might want a slight clue to the point of view with which that person is carrying into this mm. interview. It's funny that you mentioned the, uh, the people that have never been interviewed before, because one thing I, I came across when I was doing research was that people have a lot of problems with vinyl in particular, where you don't list the names of, of who you're talking to, because right. I guess in some cases they're like relatively bigger names and sometimes they're not and and now you've reached a point where you're you're making a film that does fit kind of in the talking head mold where you've got the names they're listed right. uh, is this something that is a consideration of yours like a concern like do you want to uh, right well in the in the beginning i didn't want to put the names partly because do you put the names of your neighbor <laughs> like yeah. you only put the names of famous people and then who's that guy well that's my neighbor you know like <laughs> and then if you put the name of one famous person, and then you put Mike Cartmel, my friend, next, they'll go, should I know him? And they'll be Googling, <laughs> and they'll think everybody's famous, and I'm just like, 
you know, also it's like, you know, in Icarmudgeon I had Mark Eitzel. Well, Mark Eitzel is one of my heroes, but if I, he, but whatever, he's not a, like, he nobody knows who that is. At least visually distinctive, I, I, I caught on who it was. You know, but I mean, so, so yeah, that's why I did it, because it's sort of, I just feel like if I put the names, I would be joining a tradition that I didn't want to join. Mm. And when it came to when Jews are funny, I think that since everybody was on some level famous, then it was fine to put the names. Because mm. I was, you know, I mean, not everybody was famous, but there is, there's my, I have a friend in it, and so, but there is like, almost everybody is famous in some way, mm. and so that's why I, you know, people suggested that I put their name every time, and I was like, no, I'm not gonna do that. But, but I think that, yes, I know people have that complaint, and I'm, I'm baffled by that <laughs> complaint, because what do you care? Yeah. What do you, like, that's, you want to appreciate the film on another level than the film I'm making. Ooh, it's that guy, like, you know, if you know who it is, good, if you don't, it's another guy in my film, and so, yeah, yeah. I don't know that. I'm telling you, that is just weird. That to even <laughs> remember that people do do that because it's just like, you know, what do you? That's so you. I'm robbing you of that moment of going to your husband. Hey, that's uh, you know, like, <laughs> Bruce LeBruce for like yeah, Bruce two Bruce seconds. Or, you know, like yeah, yeah. But I mean, yes. I I I knew I was going to do that thing that people always ask me to do in when Jews are funny. Yeah. And I felt like if there was ever, you know, that was appropriate. But it's funny that you say that makes it more talking heads. I feel like everything I've done is talking heads. Yeah, but like the mold, right? Like yeah. what people, and I think that's probably why they have that problem is they're so conditioned to expect a certain right. thing. Yeah, a lot of the stuff I did on vinyl was the opposite of stuff that I didn't like. You know? mm. I, I, I had 50 people in the film because I felt like anybody else would make that film, they would have three people. I just was sick of the, we're gonna do a film about firemen, three firemen. <laughs> we're gonna do a film about whatever, it's always three. And first of all, that means if it's 90 minutes, they're each in the film for half an hour. And sometimes you get a hit off somebody in 30 seconds and you're like, I got you, <laughs> move on. You know, you're not, you're not gonna tell me anything, like wow, that was a great story, I don't need to see you anymore. Mm. So. I, w I would add 100 people in it if I could. Also, I think I wanted to, you know, like I wanted to say, hey, record collecting is not the thing that three weirdos do, it's like probably your neighbor does. Mm. Probably you know 10 people with 1,000 records they just haven't told you. Anyway, maybe that's off topic. <laughs> uh, so with the, the last two features in particular, apart from the getting rid of the mirror, it seems like there's an aesthetic shift. And I know in the start of, 15 Reasons to Live, you outright say this. You're, you've got the shot going over the bridge and you, you're narrating it because you're, you're talking through new formal devices that you're right. using. And I'm wondering if you could expand on that and how you see your aesthetic shifting um, from the early films to the, the later ones. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, you know, that's a hard thing to talk about. Um, you know, when I went to make I Curmudgeon, I realized, when I was making vinyl, I have shots of people showing their records, which uh, I was not using that as B-roll because the film is jump cut like crazy, so it's not like I was using these shots to mask 
the jump cuts, which is why they're usually used. Mm. But I did have cutaways. By the time I did Icarmudgeon, I had been made aware by documentary professionals that what I was doing was all wrong. <laughs> I was jump cutting and there was no B-roll. And so I just thought, okay, well, what B-roll could there be? And then I realized there couldn't be any. There's, no, there's nothing I could use, like pictures of angry people. I, you know, like I just couldn't think of anything. And also I didn't want to do, again, I was trying to avoid that sort of them walking to the store, them walking down their street, them walking towards the camera thing. So I had no B-roll in that film. And then Lovable, I th we started playing around with, it's, I realized that I had never shown people on some level, since it was going to be the last time I was going to do this, I wanted to make people aware that there was some work involved in setting up the mirror. Mm. So I did some stuff like that. So it is kind of a B-roll thing. But I have to say that B-roll, or what people call B-roll, is one of those sort of film techniques that I have never really made my peace with. Mm. So, um, you know, again, when Jews were funny, when it came along, it was like, what would the B-roll be? So, okay, I can't figure out what it would be, like what would be appropriate, what would be not distracting. So I couldn't think of anything. So there's no B-roll. I think, you know, I, I'll, I, I put it down to this, uh, the kind of deep background thing. Um, at a certain point in, in, my, in my early days, a friend of mine essentially he didn't mean to criticize me, but he basically tr said, you're a storyteller rather than a visual filmmaker. Mm. And so I, I tried to prove him wrong. I made one film, Stealing Images, which I dollied all over the place, and it was made a, a fairly pretty, well-shot film. And then, then, I, then a number of things happened to make me kind of lose faith in myself and I had the opportunity to make a film that really shouldn't have been made because it was deeply uncinematic. And I was like, I'm going to prove that guy wrong and I'm going to, you know, cinematic the hell out of this uncinematic thing. And I did kind of, but also it just didn't work. Mm -hmm. And after that, there was kind of like, ah, screw that. Like, maybe I'm not visual, whatever. I'm, I'm a filmmaker but I'm not visual, how some narrow definition that I think people have a visual, I think a guy talking is visual, I don't think B-roll is more visual than my, you know, somebody talking, but I don't know, it just, something happened, I was just like, from now on I'm not gonna worry about that. Hmm. When it came to 15 Reasons to Live, I realized that you could only make that film with lots of B-roll. Hmm. There was no way, I had to find, here I was making a film where I, from the, from the beginning, I was going to tell 15 stories, one after the other, like a list. I was not going to intercut them in any way, I was not going to weave them, a technique which I've used in all my other films and which works like a charm. I wasn't going to do that, I was taking that arrow out of my quiver. I was going to tell one story after another, they, that, that should not work, but what can I do to make them feel like one film 
connected. I'm going to do everything that I can to make the film feel like one film, short of the most obvious one, which would be to intercut them. Mm. So I just decided if I shoot a lot of B-roll and use a lot of B-roll and also probably a little more music than you would normally use, I might get away with doing this thing which was structurally utterly ill-advised. Hmm. So that's the film where, and on some level also, I was just sick of people saying that I'm incapable <laughs> of doing this, so I did it. But I mean, I'm not, you know, I, there's some nice B-roll, there's some very conventional B-roll in it. There's, there's nothing, none of the B-roll is like, you know, Bertolucci, it's just B-roll. There's the woman, she lives in a, in a you know, a lighthouse. It's beautiful on Georgian Bay. How are you going to not shoot a nice shot of a lighthouse on Georgian Bay? But it's not like, there's nothing special about mm. it. But we just did as much as we could. And I think it contributed to this film that on some level shouldn't have worked working. Mm. But I don't think, no, I don't think there's a real change in my aesthetic. I don't think there is. I think that, I think that, you know, that, I think that I have filmmaking chops that can be applied to anything, but there probably is something I'm better at. Mm. And so I'm probably best at doing these sort of personal talking heads films, but I don't intend to only make them. Mm. A hard name seems to stand out a bit for that reason, because it, it seems the one that you're in the least. Right. It does also feature some B-roll. I mean, you're going right. around shooting. It seems like it has those conventional documentary qualities. So I don't know if you could speak a little bit about that film as something that kind of stands out and its, its themes, right. its, its aims. Yeah, Our Name was probably the film that I thought, it was the first film I made that I wasn't in, let alone in the mirror, and I thought that probably, when, as I started, I thought, okay, this is how I'm gonna make films from now on. It's gonna be similar, it's gonna be collective stories, it's gonna be similarly intercut, it's gonna be multi-characters, it's gonna be interview, but I won't be in it. Uh, because I'm not an ex-con, and I have nothing to say about being an ex-con. But what I found was that even in that film, it helped to have an intermediary there for the audience to relate to. I think there was something about these characters and how, you know, scary they were in a way, and how off-putting they were in a way that if the audience knew that somebody like them was in the room talking to them, they'd go, oh, okay. Or even they would think, wow, that guy's so brutal, but he's kind of charming. And they would see, I'm charmed by him, that they would go, okay, I can be charmed by yeah. him. So, and then also it was just like, you know, I needed, people would say really horrible, sad things, and I needed a pause. Yeah. Some, and so I just was like, what techniques do I have to pause? Well, some was B-roll, and sometimes I would ask a really long question. So it's weird, that one I feel like, wow, what are you doing in that film? But that one was a kind of classic, it's not a personal film, but the director as interlocutor mm. is a character in the film on some level. Mm. and. Uh, I probably would do that again if I made another film like that. Hmm. 
Given the nature of these films all having these strong characters in it that I'm sure audiences respond to, do you get a lot of questions about what's happened to these people in these films, where, where their stories have gone since? I do get, yeah, I do. I mean, I don't get that as much about I imagine people don't go, is that guy still negative? But the people do say vinyl, does that guy still collect records? And from, from lovable, people definitely ask, are they still single? Mm -hmm. And people are most concerned with how the people in a hard name are doing. Mm. And uh, because I think they really come out of the film wishing the best for these people, hoping they stay out of jail, hoping they find some peace, and uh, which is a strange thing to feel about criminals. Mm. And yeah, the, the um, I saw two of the people, one, Three, I saw three of the people in the film I just saw uh, a few weeks ago and they're, they're, they're still out of jail. It's, you know, years, four years, five years since I interviewed them. And then two of the people in the film have died. And then two of the people in the film, it's not, they're not in jail, but I'm not going to say they're doing that well. Mm. So, yeah, um, it's, it's, it's I'm, you know, that film was was real spe really special to me. I'm not sure I'll ever do anything like that. When I finished it, I really thought, you know what? I'm gonna just make films about crime and criminals and prison and the rest of my life. But then I pitched like a bunch of them and I got turned down. I was like, okay, I guess I'm not gonna do that. <laughs> but that, I would be happy to do that. I really, I think that's an extremely rich vein for documentary, because it's so well covered in fiction, but so uncovered in documentary. Mm. And you have that balance of these characters, but there's also, you know, you're kind of exposing certain qualities that, you know, the general public doesn't know about, specifically with like the legal system or the... Yeah, the, the interesting thing, one interesting thing about that film that happened was that it premiered on a Friday, and on a Saturday I ran into this woman I know who works for the Attorney General, and she told me that after the film screened, these tweets went out to everybody in the Attorney General's office that this is a film they have to see, and when I said to her, really? Because you guys deal with criminals all the time, like, I would not think that you would be the ones most interested, she said, yeah, but we don't hear them tell their stories. We don't, we, we deal with them in such a specific way, we never, hear them talk about their lives. We never hear them talk like that. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, you know, that's just like a really simple documentary thing. It's like bringing stories that we don't normally hear. And, you know, we have a lot of stuff about criminals and crime, but we never hear them really talk. And I think, think it was really moving when they did. Hmm. In fact, a friend of mine just wrote that even if Rob Ford did kill the guy, He's going to feel for him because of my film, which I think is taking it too far. <laughs> <laughs> um, your films all have kind of thematic links at points, but they're also distinct. But you mentioned that you wanted to continue down a specific vein and it just didn't work out. Is, is that something you're conscious of, uh, the, the idea of varying the subject matter versus uh, being consistently down one specific path? I don't know. You know, um, uh, I think that... Um, I feel like I'm not good at coming up with subjects for films because uh, I feel like, other, I don't know, I, it's like 
I'm always jealous of everybody else's idea. Oh, I wish I'd had that. Because I, I have this image that there are these sort of perfect documentary subjects, and I never come up with them. Mm. It's like one way to express it is that I couldn't pitch any of these films. If I had to pitch them, they'd be like, who are the characters? I don't know. I haven't met them yet. <laughs> What's it about? I don't know. I haven't talked to them yet. Just trust me, because I did it before. No, that doesn't work. So I always feel like I wish I could just say, it's about, we'll meet this person, and he will walk across Canada, and when he's finished, he will change, and he'll go home. <laughs> Perfect documentary. Um, except probably it should be a she, but otherwise. Um, yeah, like I just never have those ideas, and I'm always wish thinking, will I ever have those ideas, and I'm always kind of waiting to have one of those ideas, but in the meantime, I have to pitch something, and then I pitch 10 ideas, and then they say yes to the one I like the least, and then you're making that film, and then two years later, people say, why did you really want to make that <laughs> film? And I really didn't, <laughs> but I really wanted to make another film. Yeah. And I do, on some level, feel like, you know, I love filmmaking. I love the process of filmmaking. I really don't care what the film is about. I don't care if all my six films had been six different films. Mm. I just care. I'm not attached to the subject, which is sort of what documentary is spoken of too much. Like, I made this film. Why did, did you spend your whole life wanting to make this? No, like, no, I wasn't even interested in it when I first got the gig. Like, I just tried to make a good film. So, um, I've always been, yeah, I've, I've always, it's like, you know, after I made vinyl and I thought, how can I do this again? What other negative, what other aspect of my character could be a film? And I had this idea for I curmudgeon because I'd had a, an experience that I talk about in the film. And some friend of mine said, oh, that's, you know, you, with vinyl, you had the luxury of having text and subtext. The film was ostensibly about vinyl, but it was really about other things. That's, in this film, what's the text and the subtext? It's like a film about subtext. And I was like, yeah, that's fucked up. Okay, that's a real challenge. So every film, I feel like every film I've made, it's just been the challenge, the mm. feeling of, oh, this is impossible, this is a crazy idea, but I think I can do it. That uh, has influenced me. Um, or has driven me the most. Uh, I feel now like I don't want to do that anymore. I feel now like I would just like to make a film that I do know it could be good and try to just make it excellent. Mm. Just like use my craft. That was sort of, 15 Reasons was sort of an exercise in do I have chops or don't I? And if I do, then, then I'll try to use them in other places. I don't feel the same need to, yeah, to prove anything or to myself either. But at the same time, probably, you know, the best laid plans, I'll just end up in the, you know, I'll, uh, I'll have this idea and then they'll have the one that's like my other films and that's the one they'll go for. But, um, yeah, no, I, 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 there was no plan, and it, it was pretty random, and, and uh, 
the fact that there are, that one can look back and see consistencies, well, that makes sense because I made them all, but, but I, there wasn't a plan. Mm. The one thing that I always notice in them is the, the subject of filmmaking and films. I was curious if you would ever make, like that would be a real challenge, I guess, because it's yeah. the kiss of death to make a film about filmmaking, but it's so consistent yeah. in all of your films. Yeah, well that's, that's, yeah, I would like to, I mean that's true, it's like, how would you make a film about this? That, it's, it, you know, I can't remember, oh, I know. I thought about something the other day. You know, this is a good example. I was talking to my friend about like politics and the Tea Party and things like that. And we started talking about the South and doing road trips in the South. And we started to, I started talking about the fact that you can pull into the smallest Southern town. I know this is a bit of a long way to go for, to make a point, but <laughs> you can pull into a small Southern town and talk to a guy. That guy can talk with idioms so refreshing that you wanna write them down. It's like poetry. And the guy's a lawyer and he's talking like, Faulkner, and then he says, oh, that reminds me, and he pulls out a guitar, and it's like the best flat picking you've ever heard, and then that guy's in favor of, like, uh, changing the sodomy laws back, you know, mm. making sodomy illegal, and he's for, you know, he voted for, you know, the Tea Party, and it's like he's like a racist pig, and also the most beautiful human being you've ever met, and I was like, can I make a film about that? Probably not, but I'm thinking about it. That seems impossible. Way too big. It should, probably should be a fiction film. But, it, it, you know, what could happen is I could say that and a producer could overhear it and talk to a broadcaster and then he'd go, do you want to make that film? And then he'd be making that film. That's what happened with A Hard Name. Like, yeah. I didn't pitch A Hard Name. I saw something on TV about Alcatraz. In it, there was this prisoner who was the last guy that got out of Alcatraz. He was an old ex-con. And I just said to Michael McMahon, that's interesting. And then somebody asked Michael, what is Alan doing next? And he said, well, he told me this thing. And then next thing, you don't talk about film, like, especially in the documentary world, it's, you know, you never talk about filmmaking. It's all about either the business or the subject. All they want to talk about is the subject, and it's like, you know, you want to talk about the subject? Talk about, talk to that guy who's an expert on the subject. I'm a filmmaker and I'm moving on now, but I'd love to talk about filming. I like to talk about editing, you know, like, mm. and yeah, I really, I like to talk about constructing a story. I like to talk about storytelling, not about what the story was on some level. Mm. So anyway. Uh, I don't know if I answered your question. Yeah. Do you have a next project lined up or is it something that you're still ruminating? I don't. I put in a, I put in a development application for something that I sort of don't want to do, but it's a leftover idea that probably is sort of sticking in my craw. And I don't want to do it because it's just a repetition stylistically. But again, if I got the money, I guess I would do it. <laughs> yeah. And then... I, ha I do, I actually am most excited to do that I hope, I have a film about one guy and I met him recently and he, well, I have his permission. I guess I just don't want to jinx it by saying who that person yeah. is, although not that everybody would know, but some people would know. Yeah, I don't know, you know what, I mean, I feel, for the first time, I feel a little bit of pressure 
from winning that prize yeah. at TIFF because I feel like there's more attention and I should do something with that atten atten attention. And if I just make a hard name part two, it'll be like, oh, you know, like, you know, like I just, uh, you know, I, I'd, it's only now really that I would say I have a career. You know, at 61, I have a career and I would like to have a career. At the same time, I'm not gonna, I mean, I've often said I would sell out if somebody would let me, but nobody, <laughs> Nobody will hire me. I've literally had people. I had a guy at, like, at this TV station telling me, oh, such a weird thing to say. He said, "You have to protect your brand." That's all. <laughs> <laughs> like, no, I don't. Like, uh, why are you protect? I don't want to protect my even the fact that he used that word brand. Yeah, yeah. Like, that's a word that was so disgusting <laughs> when you first heard it, and now people just say it. Like, you know, brand management. That's yeah, like, yeah, like, like, yeah. Like, uh, so I don't want to protect my brand. I, I want to. I want to make. I want. Yeah. I want to make bigger. I can't even break out of this budget thing that I'm in. Uh, mm. you know, both when Jews were funny and my other film were imagined under uh, 15 reasons for sure under the idea that we would get that next level of budget and I'd be able to tell stories from around the world. No. So um, you know. I mean. Like, all I really want, I just want, I, yeah, I, I, I like making films, I want to make more films. I want to make, you know, five more before I die or something like that. Um, but I hope I can, I don't know, yes, I do feel weirdly like this is the most attention I've ever had. And, you know, ironically for a film that I was very, very, very worried about, I mean, it's not, I'm not lying at all when I thought it was my worst. When I say I thought it was my worst film, and when it got into TIFF, I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm in TIFF with my worst film, like, but, you know, with all the attention it's gotten and all that it, it probably will be seen more than any of my other films, and it probably made me vaguely more well-known or my name is out there, I would like to figure out how to capitalize on that, but I don't know how to. I don't, I don't even, like, I can't even conceive what that would be except to do something fictional and actually I'm, I'm trying to do go back to fiction but I'm not sure that that's a career move either. I don't know what that would be but I, yeah, I'd like to, I mean, yeah, I'd like to, <laughs> I don't know, yeah, I was, this is, people often say you should do a sequel. You know, do a sequel to vinyl or something like that. I'm not going to do that, but it, you know, maybe that would be a career move, but that's definitely not going to happen. It's that scene in Lovable where you're just transcoding everything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I mean, well, because vinyl's back, so people would say, do you know? I mean, this is again, you know, just a bit of a stretch, but you know that I've been waiting for 13 years since vinyl came out for somebody to do the film that is about record collecting that my film isn't about. And if you go on YouTube, you can actually see that there are a whole bunch of attempts, but still hasn't been done. Mm. It's like, well, maybe I should do it, but actual film about record collecting, professionally done rather than these, but no, but that's a gig. Like, so I'd pay, I'd do that if you paid me, but I'm not, that's not gonna be an idea I'm gonna have. Mm. That's a good place to end it. Thanks, Al.